Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. So, Kevin, what did we just watch? Uh, We just watched Dragnet 1966. It was actually produced in 1966, but did not reach the broadcast airwaves until 1969. Uh, After this film was produced, uh, the studio... What the hell is Dragnet for everyone who's not a billion years old? (laughs) Uh, Dragnet is a police franchise that I've always really enjoyed. It got to start back in the late 40s as a radio program uh, featuring Jack Webb. What's it about? 
featuring Jack Webb is Sergeant Jill Friday investigating uh, crimes in the city of Los Angeles. It got its reputation for being uh, super realistic and dealing with the actual procedures and tactics and, and techniques of the cops as they investigated the crimes. Was it like the first police procedural or one of the first? It was one of the first that was aimed at an adult audience instead of like a kitty cop and robbers type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a very successful radio show. It made the transition to uh, TV in the 1950s. It, uh, there was actually a, a, an earlier movie in 1954, which most people find disappointing. Uh, the show went off the air, I believe, in the late 50s, maybe 58, 59. And then in 1966, it was uh, revived as a movie, but uh, the studio liked it so much they decided just, what the heck, let's just do a whole new series. Nice. And this it was ran, supposed to be the pilot. This was supposed to be the pilot, but it was not aired until 1969. And this also has uh, Harry Morgan as Officer Bill Gannon, who is Friday's partner in this. Yeah, most people, of course, uh, remember Harry Morgan probably best as Colonel Sherman Potter from The, the Mass Show. Oh. In this, he's a police officer who likes to complain about his dental problems. Yeah, one of the formulas of Dragnet is that uh, Jack Webb's character of Joe Friday is always very serious, always very stern, always very formal. But he always has a partner that has a couple of eccentricities, kind of an oddball, kind of a flake. And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about his partner, uh, Bill Gannon? So I'm the part. Am I the partner to your Joe Friday? <laughs> Just the facts. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> should, should we talk a little bit about Gannon, or should we just start at the beginning? Let's start at the beginning. We'll get to know Gannon along the along the journey. When we begin, the, I think the first thing we see is a stop sign, which yeah. is kind of symbolic because uh, Friday seems to have a very negative idea about the lawlessness of society. And so if, if you're thinking about giving in to some of your urges, just stop. Or maybe it's for some people to stop watching the film because it's going to be a little bit inconsistent. I will say, I I overall enjoyed this. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Like, it's hard almost to criticize it too much because it's kind of its own thing. It has its own vibe. Yeah. It, it's very, very much a product of its time, especially you know what, the 1960s version. You know what it reminds me of? And this is a stupid comparison, and people are going to be like, well, duh. But, like, in a way... In a way, it reminds me of, like, SVU. Because it's, like, not in that it's a police procedural, but just in that it's its own thing. It's got its own groove going. And, like, you can say this is not very consistent or this is not very good, but it is very much itself. Yeah. So Friday's actually on vacation at the beginning of the movie. Yes. Um, he uh, He's coming in just to get his mail, you know, something normal people do on their vacations. First thing you want to do is go back to work to get your mail. <laughs> so I think he's having a bit of trouble in terms of uh, letting go and, and relaxing, I think. You don't think uh, Joe Friday enjoys uh, a wild time on his time off? Don't you feel like he kind of just came from sitting on his couch for like seven days straight staring at the wall with the TV turned off? Yeah, that's plausible. Actually, later in the uh, in the story, he, he'll say, oh, Bill is working on this case. I was kind of following the case through newspaper articles. So it's like even if he's on vacation, he's still reading about crime. Yeah, he's a bit of a workaholic. 
Um, but meanwhile, some guy in the parking lot, I think it was the parking lot attendant or one of his colleagues, I couldn't really tell, <laughs> confronts him and is like, yo, you know, like there's like lots of big trouble upstairs, fella. Like things are going on. So Friday goes up. <laughs> I misheard what they were talking about. And I I was shocked because I thought this is going to my understanding, the what I've seen of Dragnet, which is not much, but I've listen to some of the radio broadcasts with Kevin and I've seen some episodes here and there was that it's kind of formal. It's, it doesn't like those long haired hippie types. It's kind of corny. It's not, it's not like gritty or like people are cursing. Right. So what did you think you hear? (laughs) (laughs) So he goes up and talks to the chief or one of the chiefs. One of the chiefs. I like that, that there's no chief. It's just a bunch of like bureaucrats above them. I thought one of the bureaucrats, one of the guys above him said, we're up to our a holes in this. (laughs) But he said navels, so I guess I'm just a sordid-minded young miss. Yes, it's a shocking indictment of how your mind works. (laughs) But I was like, wow, we're really getting off the bat kind of... (laughs) You you said, yee-haw, now we're in for it. Let's go. And I hated to break the news to you. Ani, I'm so sorry they actually said something totally innocuous. Who says we're up to our navels? Like, who says that? That's just weird. It was a different time. Yeah, it was a strange time. But so the, the chief, when they said they were up to our navels and stuff, and so it's just taken as a matter of course, well, you know, Joe, Friday, you're going to end your vacation early and come back and help us with this stuff. Is it weird that I, I've started reacting badly to when this happens in, in movies or film? I'm kind of like, go take a vacation. You know, like, what are you doing? They have all these cops who, what are you telling me, Joe Friday's the only one who could have solved this murder? This isn't even a murder at this point. No, it's just a missing... It, no, it, no, well, no, 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 yeah. no, yeah, at this point... You're right. At this point, they say, Joe, some, uh, somebody from the Soviet Union is coming, and then we need you to help with the security. Like, don't let your boss take advantage of you like that. That's all I'm saying. I feel like this Do kind self-care, of, Joe. Yeah, no, well, this, it's not even about hippy-dippy shit like that. I mean, it's just like, you know, you, you earned that vacation... Go take it. Don't let people walk all over you. Stuff like this makes people be like, I want to be like Joe Friday. And you know, then their boss comes in and says, get back to work. And they're like, okay. Don't be like Joe Friday here, folks. Don't do it. So does this happen in the media world? Like if, you, if you're on vacation and you show up at your office, your newsroom, to pick up some mail, would like an editor come and say, no, you got to come back to work to cover this routine, unimportant story? I think it would be more likely that an editor would be like, what the hell is wrong with you? Get the hell out of here. Go go take some time off, damn it. I'm terrible about taking vacations, so I can't I can't criticize too much here. But no, I don't see something like this happening. In any workplace, frankly. I think people would be like, go home. Are you okay? <laughs> Why couldn't he have asked if he really needed it? First of all, would he really need his mail? No, he just came back to get involved. You know, call up your partner Bill and have him drop it off. Especially Bill, we find out his partner Bill Gannon is going through something on his own. He's being forced to retire in like tomorrow. Because he's falling apart physically. And so this means if Joe hadn't ended his vacation, he wouldn't have seen Bill again. No, Bill would have just been sent out to the pasture. <laughs> but so it's kind of interesting because you know Bill Gannon tells his partner, "I'm being forced to retire," and like Joe Friday. Okay. Like, he doesn't really seem to care. That's good, Bill. Yeah, like what? I kind of, I kind of like that he's a robot, though. I weirdly kind of like that. That's different. Like sometimes bad writing is like this character's so great and empathetic, and they're, and they're so good at everything. But this, like, it, 
it kind of he's just he just wants to do work and like that's not a good thing in life but like i kind of respect it as a character choice like we're not like i don't the best law and order shit or the best procedurals in my opinion are when we do not know shit about their personal lives i don't care about the backstory i don't care about Oh, I miss my son Billy's baseball game. Go fuck yourself. I want to know about how you're doing your job and solving a mystery. Those are good procedurals. And this, with his character, they seem to kind of get that. We care about him doing his job. We don't really ca- I mean, am I am I terrible? I know I know actors in these shows want to chew on a lot of personal background because they feel like that's the uh, Emmy potential. But to me, the interesting shit is them doing their job. You don't like the personal stuff, the quirky stuff. Well, that stuff is almost never well written. So in, in this one, uh, I'm not even jumping too much. No. We, we learned that Bill Gannon, he's falling apart physically. He has a lot of tooth problems. He talks about it. It's kind of happy music plays. And he has like a wacky cousin who's trying to, to make him a bridge for his tooth. That didn't so, bother me that much. I mean, so like, that didn't bother you? No, it didn't bother me because it's kind of just stupid. And it's kind of like billed as stupid. I think... I think I'm bothered more when they're like, when it's like an SVU type thing, when they're like trying to be like, Elliot's going to have to talk to his kids about stranger safety and his world's a little bit darker because he worked this hard case. And it's like, I don't care. I'm sorry. Like, because it's never, it's never handled in an interesting or nuanced way. In the shows I've watched, I'm sure some police procedurals have handled it well. You introduced me to Homicide recently. I've, you know, I've heard other other shows are, are good at this, but I'm just saying the the crap I watch never does the personal side well. So I'm always kind of like, oh, geez, here we go. So in theory, would you like be interested in seeing like an episode of Dragnet about Joe and Friday spending the weekend together, like trying to cook? Did you just turkey? say Joe and Friday? Okay, the Bill- two sides of his personality. <laughs> I misspoke. Would you enjoy seeing Bill and Joe spend the weekend together trying to like cook a, a turkey and? Watch some television. If it was like purely wacky shit like that, yeah. Such an episode exists. No! <laughs> no, I've been trapped. Such an episode exists. I've been trapped. Oh. Now I feel like a turkey. <laughs> I've seen every episode of this uh, You're a version of this franchise at least three or four times. Kevin, why do you like Dragnet so much? It has its own bizarre vibe. It has its own bizarre rhythms, and a lot of the stories are about nothing. Like, like there's a story where they train dogs to hunt for drugs, and that's like the story. <laughs> Woof. And like, you know, there's oh gosh, we hope this works, and then you like zoom in on the lieutenant's desk. You zoom in on his hand as he slowly crosses his fingers because he has, does really hope it works. He's crossing his fingers for luck. That's the kind of show it is. And there's a lot of straw man stuff where really exaggerated versions of hippies make ridiculous declarations that Joe Fry then like tears down effortlessly. Like conservative tears apart liberal hippies. Like it's like some kind of like YouTube conservative bait or something. Yeah, it's a very bizarre. I got a very right wing vibe from this show. Yeah, it's very right wing. Very right wing. Is Jack, was the guy who played... Friday, very right wing. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, you could tell this is a very right wing vibe, and it's interesting. Um, 
but like they're trying to they're not trying to be they're trying to be like well we'll we'll get into it later but they're trying to be inclusive at the same time they're they trying, just hate hippies they hate hippies honestly though i'm left wing i don't like hippies so i don't you, like hippies so you stand with jack webb a and lot Joe of hippies Friday. a lot of hippies people don't really a lot of hippies sold out the baby boomers come on they're not so, so are you are you saying you hate hippies for selling out you want them to stay pure hippie? No, I'm just saying when your your whole thing is just, I think the whole thing was always bullshit. And it was shown to be bullshit in how the baby boomer generation has turned out. But I think the whole thing was always just bullshit. It was just hedonism. So I'm not about that life. So would you like to see like an episode of Dragnet where Joe Friday goes on television and debates a really exaggerated, ridiculous, cocky, Hippie, played by Howard Hessman of uh, Debbie Carapine, Cincinnati fame. Such an episode exists. <laughs> I didn't even. <laughs> wow. He cuts that hippie down to size. So do like do like like right wingers like think they're doing like a Joe Friday impression when they're like trying to like debate get people to debate them then. Yeah, I think so. But the thing is, that doesn't work in real life because he's no he's no yeah. charisma at all. <laughs> He has no charisma at all. He gives lots of speeches. Yeah, everyone would be just like rolling their eyes and walking away from him. This is like a this is like the version of reality of a guy like that because he has no idea how he's perceived. So one thing I really like about the franchise is when you watch a lot of things on television, they're obviously the work of a committee. And this show very, very much represents the vision of one man. Jack Webb. It's very personal, the way it's written, the way it's performed and acted, uh, the way it's shot. Uh, if you watch the series, you see they often wear the same suits. Mm -hmm. Is that way they can do like a whole lot of scenes all at once from like different episodes oh, if I they love want that. to. He, uh, one thing I'm sure you didn't pick up on uh, because you're not a hundred is because he would cast the same actors in supporting roles constantly and so a lot of the people in supporting roles in this movie also appeared in his other series and other episodes of the show like he cast his ex-wife's current husband is a character in this well that's kind of nice well it's nice to give people recurring work so i i support that i just i i it makes me curious about this guy who 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 did it. I, I wh one thing I noticed throughout this, and I'm sure it's in the episodes too. All the cops are like normal, but very flat. Even the quirky cop, it's very flat. And uh, in terms of affect, and you know, I mean, not flat act, but like there's a kind of um, there's a kind of like a we're just normal guys. Da -da -da. And there's not a lot of like emotion there. And then a lot of the uh, the witnesses are either very outlandish or um, or sinister. And then e either when you're not a cop, you're either outlandish, sinister, or a victim. And the victims are just sad. They're allowed to be more normal. But everybody else is just like, oh, hey, I think I saw these guys. I'm a hillbilly bellhop. And you're like, what the fuck? Or like, I don't want you in my club anymore. I'll throw you out in the rubbish. And it's like people acting just completely crazy. And then the cops are like, okay, thanks. Thanks for your statement. Like, <laughs> So are you like me? Do you find that bizarrely fascinating? Well, it shows like a, it shows like a real, real hard on for 
the police and the yeah. police work and kind of like these are the only normal guys these are the only one you can trust see what it's like out here everybody's just either an idiot or is really awful and uh, you know s stalling the investigation into a missing girl so it's like it shows a worldview in a way where like we're kind of couched as seeing the cops as the only normal ones and just guys doing their jobs and everybody else is like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> so I just think that's interesting. Yeah, and this version of the show really plays up the angle of the cops. Like everything the cops do, even their smallest, most routine tasks are somehow heroic and worthy of being uh, made the subject of a story on television. I mean, like, would you be interested in seeing an episode where Joe Friday just works the citizens complaint desk? Such an episode exists. Oh my God. <laughs> You're out of control, <laughs> Kevin. You could just be making these up also. And I'd be like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> it's a wild show. You could be like, <laughs> would you like to see an episode where Joe Friday's car comes alive and helps him solve crime? Such an episode exists. <laughs> I'd watch it. That sounds a little bit like my mother, the car. There you go. They could do it. I, I, I'm i curious, though. I don't know. I don't want to. We better jump into the plot of this. But I think it is helpful to talk about what the hell Dragnet is, you know, if you're, if you know, whether or not you're interested in it. I, I, uh, I guess I'll also mention before we get too much further yeah. is there was a semi spinoff of Dragnet called Adam 12, which is also delightful. That's about two patrol officers who basically just drive around a city that appears to be coming apart at the seams because in every episode there's like two or three little minor incidents that indicate a, a city falling apart. They run into like drunk drivers or people being mean to their kids or stuff. And they, they, they're always trying to restore order. Hmm. And it's the, the incidents that they run into in an, any given episode are not, not really connected to one another. So it's just random bullshit just thrown at you. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. That's life, baby. That's life. That's Deal LA. With <laughs> That's the the city of and angels. In that case, the two patrol officers both have more personality and speak more normally than that. That sounds cool. That sounds like a cool show. I, I I wonder what have you ever been to Los Angeles? Uh long, long time ago. What did you do there? Uh I went with a friend of mine. We went to see a, a filming of the television program Jeopardy with oh. me, Alex Trebek. Late Alex Trebek. That's pretty cool. Uh, Is it? Yes. I love Jeopardy. That's my favorite game show. So I think that's cool. I've been there once. I just went to the Santa Monica Pier and got rejected from an internship. <laughs> I also uh, made a point to drive by the home of Clara Bow, the it girl. From the 20s? From the 20s. What? When were you born? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, Kevin. <laughs> Were you like doing some weird 1920s warbling outside her house? Like my darling Clara Bow. <laughs> I can see that. You in, know a me so well. in a straw hat. <laughs> well, what were you doing on the Santa Monica Pier? Staring out into the water. <laughs> was this after you'd been rejected? I think I knew I was not going to get the internship. No, LA's cool though. I would love to go back and visit. But um but this makes it seem like in the sixties it was uh, a bit of a mess. Well I also went Is to see oh. a, 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 a taping of the uh long forgotten comedy series Murphy Brown. Oh, damn. I've heard of that. Yeah. Uh Kevin. It's really dated. There you go. Doesn't stand up at all. 
This stands up just because it's so weird. It's not very like specific to the 1960s, or maybe it is in some ways, but it's really just kind of this weird outlook. The, it's a little bit different from the TV show because the TV version is much more tied to the 60s. My question is, are there a lot of serial killers? There's the, spoiler alert, there's a serial killer in this. Are there a lot of serial killers in the show, or is that just like, we're going to bring out the big guns for the movie? Uh, there's not a lot of serial killers on the show. Not a lot of murders on the show. Okay, well that's that's kind of realistic, because like I feel like people watch police procedurals nowadays, and there's so many serial killers and there's so many murders, and people just who are people who are not sophisticated <laughs> kind of come away thinking like, wow, LA is everyone's getting murdered, or wow, New York City everyone's getting murdered, and that's just you know no. And this show also has like more action. Yeah. Like, Punches are thrown and stuff. I liked it. That doesn't really happen on the TV oh, show. Oh, well, I like action. I like, you know, the razzle-dazzle. You love the razzle-dazzle, but what about the intellectual razzle-dazzle as Joe Friday gives a kick-ass speech? No. <laughs> we're talking, he gives a speech in this uh, movie, but we'll get to that oh, later. Oh, God. Um, so let's get back yeah, to Joe let's, Friday's told Joe, you gotta help with this Russian security thing. It's so terribly, terribly terribly important only you can do it joe you gotta end your vacation early to do this big russian detail and so he goes up and we listen to a few minutes of the briefing and there's like a confrontation kind of a tense confrontation mm -hmm. between a couple of the russians and uh one of the americans and then uh joe's friday joe friday's partner uh cracks open the door and says joe come out here you're not working on this case. What are you thinking? You're going to work on this murder case with me. Join the real plot. It's over here. And then we don't hear any more about the Russian story. I assume the Russian uh, diplomats all died and that this uh, brought the uh, countries to the brink of nuclear war <laughs> because Joe Friday wasn't there to help him out. Yeah, like what, what the fuck's the point? <laughs> There's so many. I want to be clearer. This is not a. This is not a fluke. This is... There are so many moments. There are so many Russian diplomat moments in this movie where it's like, uh, okay, everybody, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. It's not going to be important. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when the teacher in like high school would be like, okay, like we're going to dedicate a whole class to this topic. Oh, but don't worry. It's not going to be on your finals. And it's like, what, what the, f why, why? And it's not really adding to the story in any way. It's just. It's like to show that cops do different things. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. So from there, now, now uh, Gannon's case is three young women have gone missing. Two models and a housewife who was on a date with somebody. And they've all gone missing. The press has picked up on this. You know, this isn't looking good. They're not sure if they're connected, but not so good. Not so good at all. No. Yet so good. Yet, that's what the Soviets would say. It's yet so good. Did you? Were you hoping to see more of like the Soviet plot? Well, I, I, yes. Well, it wouldn't it, like why introduce it and then go nowhere with it? Because it's not like it's like if it was like Joe Friday trying to look for the missing girls while also having to deal with the Soviet detail bullshit. Then it would be like okay, he's overcoming a challenge in order to potentially help save some young women. But it's. It just goes nowhere. It just, it's just, it's baffling. And like the Soviets are being unreasonable. It's like, did he just hate the Soviet Union and wanted to paint them in a bad light, but had no real energy to do it in a significant way? I don't know. It's a strange moment, but we're moving on. We are <laughs> just moving like on. the movie did. 
So three women, two models, and a housewife, uh, one victim, uh, met the perp through a Lonely Hearts Club. We go and Joe and Bill go and talk to this victim's brother. And he noticed that the perp had a, the backseat of his car was full of camera and photography equipment. Yes. So Friday and Gannon go to this really sleazy, and I just want to be, well, I'll describe it and then I'll say, share my opinion. This Lonely Hearts Club, it's called Garden of Eden or something, or Adam and Eve. And they call all the men Adams and they call all the women Eves. And everything's like heart shaped and the doorbell like plays a wedding, the wedding march. And it is just, I want to say this is the scariest thing in the whole fucking movie to me. (laughs) This place is so thoroughly cursed, but I could kind of see it existing in 1960s LA. I I never lived there and I never went back in time to 1960s LA, but it feels like something like this could have existed and it's horrible folks. It's really horrible. Um, they meet this, uh, they meet all these women calling them Adams. Oh, welcome, Adams. Nice to meet you, Adams. Oh, God, fuck this. And like this, the lady who owns and operates it is just a total asshole. Just, just the worst. And like written in a way that like the fucking serial killer at the end was more reasonable than her. <laughs> I, when I see that in a movie, I'm always like, why are you making the civilian worse than the actual serial killer? <laughs> You know what I mean? I know what you mean. This is weird. But anyway, they're, of course, like, so polite. And she's just like, get out of here. Da, da, da. So then they threaten to revoke her permit. I don't even get that. What does that mean? So do you have to have a permit to have a singles club? Apparently in L.A. you did. I That seemed kind of like bullshit. But she, ended up, she ends up giving them the files that they need. But she's very upset about it. And so the file supposedly has the name and address of the guy who... Met the lady and took her out and killed her. Well, we don't know that she's dead yet. Yeah, we have a pretty good idea. Don't be naive. Oh, my God. This is L.A. Are you such a jaded uh, jaded L.A. cop? Yeah. Yeah, you are at heart. It's so funny because, like, Joe Friday's, like, such a nerd. Like, like you know what I mean? Like you, would, like, you wouldn't be intimidated by him in real life. Yeah, he's, like, a middle-aged man, kind of not really in good shape. Frankly, it looks like you could kick his ass. <laughs> But I'm 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 pretty I'm like what you call a hard body, right? Oh no, don't even. <laughs> oh, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, you're a hard body, honey. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you, you know this this uh, file. You also gave a fake address, so it's you know it's not a great lead, but they're going with it. Yeah, the address he gave turned out to be a vacant lot. So then they say, well, let's bring in a police artist, and they have the victim's brother mm-hmm. and the lady who runs the single club, Mrs. Kruger, Mrs. Kruger, Freddie's mom. Each, each give a description of this suspect, and uh, Miss Kruger says, oh, "You don't pay this artist very much, do you?" And they say, "No, ma'am, he's a police officer." It's Suggesting a, the nobility, they don't work yeah. for the money. It's such a it's like it's such a this this whole movie has a real martyrdom complex for police officers. I almost see I almost see a police officer watching it and being like uncomfortable. <laughs> like, okay, settle settle down a little bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you ever watch movies about lawyers and like the lawyers are oh the oh, this of the you know the beauty of protecting the law and like you're just like mm. or like with me with oh the freedom of the press. Oh yes. You know, and like you're like 
you like I think everyone likes to see their profession portrayed in a way that is perhaps noble and perhaps like the best of the profession, but is like realistic. I think everybody likes that. But when it's over the top, you're almost like embarrassed. So has there ever been a film that's depicted the press so positively that you felt, well, no, this is unrealistic? Well, I think a lot of movies that are like not about journalism, but are but are more of like have a journalist in it, really get it wrong. Whether it's the negative side of like, oh, the reporters are just in it for the fame or the positive side of like, I'm going to break an investigative scoop. But what if, you know, if it kills me and like, I think there's, I think there's a lot of inaccurate portrayals out there. Well, I think all the heroic lawyer pictures are chillingly realistic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's why everyone loves lawyers. Yes, it's like I'm looking into a mirror. (laughs) It's like, how do they get into the apartment and film my life? (laughs) (laughs) Good lawyers, the Kevin Greenlee story. So after all this... Uh, we well, get the sketches. Then mm. we go to the police station and we start using old school uh, technology. I think it seems to involve like punch cards or note cards. Yeah, I was thinking about like how... And then like things are popping out of things. Like they punch a bunch of buttons and then all these cards with the word Johnson come out of this like slot. And I was just thinking if they had me as a secretary in there back then, I would have destroyed this very valuable machinery so friday at this point is kind of frustrating they don't really have much to go on he says you know at this point all we've got is a pound of air <laughs> deep makes you think <laughs> yes this this script was written by richard breen who was known for uh, his ability to turn a, a, a memorable phrase i think uh he was probably first comes to our attention for his work as the scripter of Pat Novak for Hire back in the 1940s, which was an early collaboration he did with uh, Jack Webb. So if you like over-the-top detective noirish writing, I would recommend you uh, download a whole bunch of old episodes of Pat Novak for Hire. A pound of air. A pound of air. But now we're having a pound of groovy music because we're going back to the singles club and two Adams are going to be searching for some answers among the Garden of Eden. And you know Fridays. Friday says for a lonely hearts club, no one seemed very lonely. That's the point, dumbass. <laughs> it was interesting. Earlier you called this kind of a sleazy place. Yeah. And now we hear all this groovy music. But then... People are doing the Batusi. <laughs> but when we open the doors and we go into this place, it's a lot of very modestly dressed middle-aged white people standing around listening to bland music. You're kind of seen, Kevin. I thought I was going to see you standing in there amongst what? The- <laughs> It is the kind of party <laughs> where one man starts talking about how great prunes are. And he says, prune yogurt. That stuff will make a man of you. I've been to parties like this. Just just say you're constipated, you fucking coward. Jesus. Everyone's eating ice cream. There's a guy who looks like skinny Santa Claus or kind of like Tywin Lannister. It, it's, I don't know what. I don't know. This is the bottom of the barrel in terms of L.A. singles. And then you're talking about scenes and moments in the movie which are odd and don't really contribute anything. I think there's one at this point. Can you tell us about that? There's a lady, a blonde lady, who's named Eve Sorensen. You don't need to know that, but I'm going to say that because the movie felt the need to tell us. And I was feeling a lot of dread in this scene, for, for, for real. She's trying to flirt with Friday, 
and he rejects her. You know, she's kind of like, oh, it's a nice party, isn't it? And she, he's like, sorry, ma'am, just the facts. And so she's kind of like sad. And then she goes over and talks to somebody else and looks very sad. And he kind of backs off. My question, Kevin, is what did you think was going to happen with this? I, I was hoping he would explain to her, you know, actually, I'm not here for the party. I'm here. I'm working as a police officer, so don't take it personally. That would have been the nice thing because obviously her confidence was totally shattered and it was very sad. I was very worried that she was going to be the next victim of the killer. And that would have been stupid, but at least then it would have made sense why she was in the movie. I was going to be like, oh my God, he's going to reject this woman and she's going to go off and flirt with the killer and get murdered. But instead, that that was it. That was all we saw of her. So after he rejects her and she talks to someone else, we have a scene. But what was the point of that? I, I think the point was to show that Friday works too hard and that he can't ever let himself enjoy or make a connection with somebody. I thought the movie was just like kicking her. And almost making fun of her or mocking her. Because yeah, like, as I was saying, there, uh, he turns around and looks at her as she's talking and trying to flirt with someone else. And there's like sad music playing and he has like a very judgmental look on his face. Like how dare this woman stoop to trying to make a human connection with somebody else. At a singles club where you're supposed to meet other fucking singles. Like good lord. Yes, yeah, so that, that left an ominous taste in the mouth. Um, meanwhile, I mean, these people, th- these two atoms are skulking around showing composite sketches to people at sh- the party. Sh- should we mention that there's a composite sketch from the brother mm. and a composite sketch from the woman who runs the club? Yeah. And they appear to show different men. Totally different people. That's something that kind of goes nowhere goes totally nowhere and uh uh, so basically that they're they're showing these things and nobody seems to be asking like uh why are there police here showing composite sketches maybe i should be concerned because i don't know if you're doing an activity especially if it's an activity involving connecting with men if you're like a lady and somebody's walking around being like, have you seen this, these, one of these two men? Aren't you going to be like, oh, geez, like, I need to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You know, and, and so, but no one even seems to realize they're cops. They just think they're looking for their friends. Because you know what, when I want to find my friend, I have someone do a composite sketch of them. And I go around to different singles club and show those sketches. Well, that's what you did when I got lost in Bronxville. <laughs> Oh, Kevin. <laughs> so then there's another, I, 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 I don't even know if it's worth cataloging all these or yeah. even summarizing them, but there's a scene where uh, there's a person there at the club who says, oh, yes, I recognize one of those men. And then he says, well, you know, actually, I don't. Yeah. See ya. See ya, guys. All witnesses, all civilians are assholes in this, basically. Either they're assholes or they're victims or they're just weird. There's no, like, reasonable civilians i feel except for like the brother of the missing girl yeah and it's just interesting it's like this movie has a very low opinion of everybody who's not the police not just the criminals but even just random assholes at a singles club he's like eating ice cream he's a big slob you know get out of here you know and wouldn't you say that most of the people in this singles club are like in their 50s Mm Hmm. yeah so that's kind of odd what do you say? Older people shouldn't get love. What are you trying to say, Kevin? And I guess I'm I am forty nine. <laughs> so 
yeah, you're you're hoisting yourself on your own petard. So then I guess <laughs> we may as well bring down the curtain on that scene. And in the, the next scene, it starts with Joe Friday narrating and giving a lengthy definition of what legally constitutes a missing per- a missing person. Always fascinating. Because that not not you know. <laughs> I don't even pay attention in that scene, to be honest. I often wondered, frankly, what is a missing person? Aren't we all missing something sometimes? And before you met me, wasn't there something missing in your heart? (laughs) My heart was a missing person back then, Kevin. And then I was your Joe Friday. Oh, God. (laughs) Perhaps the least sexy character of all time. Uh, so then they, they're back at the office. I think jo, uh, either Joe or Bill is going to go through the pervert mugs. Yeah, your collection. <laughs> we also have a collection of ceramic pervert mugs in our house, don't we, Kevin? You're saying a little bit too much. Oh, no. <laughs> but then a, another cop who happens to be a man of color comes in. I think this is what you were talking about when the show tried to be inclusive. Yeah, it's kind of it's a very right-wing show in in many respects in terms of its dealing with the police versus civilians. It does throw some sort of inclusivity bone here and by having a token black cop come in and uh it, to be clear this is yet another Russian diplomat scene cuz this has no bearing on anything going on. Do you want to talk about this scene? <sighs> sure. Basically they bring in a perp who is accused of molesting a four-year-old girl. It's a stranger assault at, at a park. And the detective who brought him in once, uh, who, who is the you know younger cop and who is black, comes. And that's I'm mentioning that because that is important to the scene. Brings in Friday because Friday collared him several times. And the problem is that the perp was arrested and confessed to the molestation, but then went back and said he didn't actually understand his rights when he confessed. He'd been Mirandized, right? He had been, was Miranda in effect at this point? Uh, yes. So he had been Mirandized, but then he went back and said he didn't understand his rights. Kevin, if this kind of, and they're acting like it's a really big deal and that he'll walk in like three hours if they don't get him to confess. My question for you, Kevin, is if this would work, wouldn't nobody go to jail ever? Because <laughs> everyone would say, I didn't understand my rights. Yes. And also, if this was a real thing, would you deal with this problem by bringing in Jack Webb to come in and yell at the prisoner? That's basically what their strategy was. Yes. No. Um, but, but you know, I'm just saying it's kind of a stupid... A lot of this movie seems to be almost like making excuses for law enforcement in a way because it's like you want to know why there's so many pervs and freaks out there it's because of dumb rules like this that let the bad guys out and then it's like that's not even a thing was that a thing in the 60s (laughs) i don't think it was i mean it's just baffling I, i there was obviously a crime wave in the United States starting in the 60s going into the 90s. So, I mean, the, the, obviously there's an uptick in violent crime and things like sexual assault. Like uh, That was a real thing that happened. Thing. But in terms of it being because, like, yeah, liberal hippy-dippy rules like this make everyone get out. And I'm, I'm the per- kind of person where, like, when you look at 1960s and, like, 1970s shit, you're always like, oh, my God, why did they let this guy out? Like, there definitely was an issue in terms of 
um, not realizing that sexual assault had a huge recidivism rate, you know? So there's a problem here, but the problem wasn't that there was some bullshit rule like this. So they're just frustrating. I don't know. It, It seems designed to make average civilians who don't know much about law enforcement to be like, oh man, those poor cops, they have all this stuff to contend with. And like, I don't know, could I be being too harsh? Could there have been a rule like that in 1960s California? Seems unlikely. Seems unlikely. Yeah, I think it seems unlikely. You want to talk about? Oh, well, well, I want to say so. So going back to this, um, Friday gives him the what for. Friday gets to make a big speech and dunk on this child molester. What motivates Friday to lose his temper? Well, the child molester is not just a horrible person for being a child molester. He's also a raging racist and calls the black cop a slur. And the N-word. The N-word. Yes. And so Friday stands up, like, you know, gets in his face and is like, like, that's not acceptable, basically, and is yelling at him. So it's kind of making a point of like, you know what? These cops are pretty conservative, but they're not racist. (laughs) It seems like designed to be like, okay, like, you know, racist cops, never heard of them. This department only cares about what you can do, not the color of your skin. (laughs) Doesn't the whole thing read like a big PR thing? Yeah, it's basically what Dragnet does. Yes. So it's fascinating. But it it does make a point of being like, no, we're not doing racism here. Obviously, it's the LAPD, so... They did do racism. They did do some racism. They did a lot, I would say. (laughs) And way past the 1960s. But here, it's kind of like, "Hmm, we're going to take a stand. In his speech, though, he makes a reference to every hoodlum yeah, from Kane up to Capone. I don't know what... What did you think of that, Miss Kane? Well, I don't understand... Did you feel called out? I don't understand why he had to call me out specifically, because I've turned my life around in many respects. So, a little bit rude, but kind of nice to get my name out there. Yeah, I thought it was kind of deserved. <laughs> You're the one who gave it to them. <laughs> You wrote into Dragnet and been like, you know what hoodlums you can really include along with Al Capone, Anya Kane. I sent that to the web page. Oh, god damn it! That's from my friend Jazz Williams. That's his joke. <laughs> you gotta give credit. Gotta give credit. He at one point was going to do a, a a fanzine, and he suggested that I have a page every issue where I write about Jack Webb. I love Jack Webb so much. That seems like it would be our ideal job. We would call it the web page. (laughs) Jazz Williams, everybody. Or pardon me, Jazz Jacoby at this point. (laughs) Kevin, you haven't really explained why you like Jack Webb so much. And I guess, like, you know, you're very left-wing, to be clear. You're not just some weird, weird guy with a lot of weird political opinions who, like, this appeals to on that level. So what's going on here? (laughs) Are you okay? Isn't he a fascinating personality? I mean, but don't you find him magnetic? Uh, but I guess what is, what's doing it for you? I mean, like, wouldn't you love to see a movie where Jack Webb plays a grizzled Marine drill instructor? Such a movie exists. I'm just explain. (laughs) I don't understand. Like, I do, but I want to hear from you. What do you want to know? Did he have a successful career in Hollywood? I guess he got several 
movies and TV shows made. So, well, yeah. Of course, he first came to prominence for his uh, outrageous radio comedy show. Oh my God. <laughs> the wacky comic uh, actor in that. He was a huge uh, fan of uh, jazz music. Okay. Uh, he married uh, Julie London, who was regarded as a very sexy redheaded singer. I think I've played oh, some yeah. of her uh, tunes yeah. for you. Yeah. The, uh, the the person who plays the brother of the victim in this movie was at the time married to Julie London. Okay, so he's a he's a big man. He's not gonna not gonna be all mad about getting divorced. That's cool. Yeah. I guess I'm like, I guess I just still don't understand. But I guess we can move on because maybe you need to dig a little deeper to understand this about yourself. It's fascinating. Your your enthusiasm for Mr. Webb. It, it's it, there's something magnetic uh, about the force of his personality, and I, I enjoy it when a person creates stuff for a mass media or pop culture audience, which is a a glimpse into his own subconscious and his own uh, inner thoughts and view of the world. It's funny when you're talking about him being magnetic. <laughs> Don't you find Jack Webb magnetic? He's magnetic. Don't you oh, dig him? I'm just uh, getting flushed. <laughs> Now, Annie Kane. <laughs> you got so excited when you heard him mention your name. I love Kane references because that's what I'm all about, you know? Yeah. Me. Mark a Kane, baby. Mark a Kane. Going off to the land of Nod. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, so Friday yells at him basically and says, You're a bad guy, and uh, yells at him not to be racist. And. It's, yeah, basically, that's it, and we move on. So, so basically, so, some guy is trying to tell Ganon that he needs to get the fuck, his, he needs to get his old ass, his old raggedy ass the fuck out of the department because he's falling apart, his teeth are falling out, his, his, his ulcers are eating through his stomach, and they're just trying to throw him out on his ass. No respect. And, but then... But then some news comes over the radio. <laughs> what what do they learn? You're, you're getting really excited about another murder, Kevin. There's you just love death. There's something bad going on at Dogtown. <laughs> Forget it, Joe. It's Dogtown. Gannon says. They found a body in Dogtown. <laughs> Why is it called Dogtown? <laughs> this body in Dogtown, first of all, let me say, it resembles one of the sketches. Yes. And also, let me say that this is another Russian diplomat moment because mm -hmm. this basically goes nowhere. But this lasts a long fucking time. It really does. So, so the that. Why is it called Dogtown? It's because that's where the dog pound used to be. And that's why the Dogtown Daily Dispatch ran the headline, Dog Pound Hound Clown Loses Dogtown Crown. <laughs> because this neighborhood has gone to the dogs. <laughs> Dogtown looks like dog shit. There's a fucking fire in the background when they're in this dump looking through <laughs> dog feces to find this body it is it is hot diggity dog folks this place looks <laughs> terrible 
our dog Lanny's looking at me right now, just disgusted by my by all this dog talk. And the body of the dead man is covered in mustard. Oh yeah, in case this couldn't get any stupider, the body of the like that's mustard. This looks like the work of the hamburglar. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? This is so stupid. I mean, are all episodes like this where they just meet? Like it feels like talking to somebody who cannot focus. Like like us. It's like talking to us. <laughs> like we keep going in these weird directions that have no bearing on the serial killer plot. Uh, most of the episodes, the episodes uh, of the actual show are only like 25 minutes. So they don't really have the time to meander like this. All right. And what's what's strange is the story of the pursuit of this serial killer, which is actually based on a real case. Yes. You can easily fill an hour and a half. Yes. It's not like, oh, what are we going to do to kill time? And, I know. Let's do a dog count. And town. you know what? Like, no. I mean, this case to me is very, this case, it's a Harvey Glattman case. It's very chilling. I've unfortunately, you know, it's scary to read about, frankly, because it, it's just horrifying what he did to these women. And I guess it's like, you know, it's kind of ridiculous because I don't know who reads that and is like, we're going to write a story based on this. And is like, you know what we could use? Like just some random bullshit, wacky shenanigans happening. Or let's go to Dogtown. I mean, like, what the fuck is going on? And like, if you have a... If you have a serial killer situation, that's like a ticking time bomb. You have to catch him before he kills again in this situation. So it's like, like you could have really had some really intense suspense going on and stakes and whatever. And like, there's none of that because they keep on being like, well, I guess we got to go do this shit now. Like <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's realistic in terms of policing. I'm sure it's not all like serial killer stuff, but when you're telling a story, it probably helps to like stick to stick to have a story instead of having random shit pop up constantly. So uh, on this body, they find uh, a matchbook and the matchbook is from a hotel in, I, th I think it was Portland. Was it Portland? I, I don't fucking know. Portland's in Oregon. Is there a Portland in Los Angeles? No, 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 no. Remember, you weren't paying attention to this 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 marketing scheme. No. So the, I, I'm going to say it's in Portland. I think it was, but perhaps it wasn't. So they find a matchbook from a hotel in Portland, and they say Joe recently had been to Portland, and he knows for a fact this hotel has not yet been constructed. And it turns out this it, it is a part of a chain of hotels, and they have some bizarre marketing idea that if they put the name of a hotel that doesn't yet exist on matchbooks, it'll mm. get people talking. Lung cancer suites. Yes. And make their matchbooks go viral. Jesus. So they go to the local branch of the hotel where they are distributing these matchbooks for the hotel in Portland that doesn't even exist yet. And are we just wasting time talking about this element? Yes. But it's kind of fascinating. Gives you, Gives you a... Uh... It gives you a sense of how bizarre this movie is on so many levels. Well, when we cut to the chase and they identify the dead man as a Frenchman. And then they go and talk to the dead Frenchman's brother. And this was a scene that really got to you. So yeah. what, I'm going to step back <laughs> and let you paint a picture. This, this scene was the, uh, 
the scene took the matchbook, took a match, struck the match, and then dropped it into the gasoline of my strange brain. Because this really just made me crack up for some reason. Because I'm, I mean, it, on the surface, it sounds horrible. The cops are telling this Frenchman that his brother is dead. And then the brother has to go in and tell the Frenchman's, the, 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 vic, the, the victim's young son that he died. And the young son is very upset. And like, that sounds horrible, right? So I'm a sicko. I'm a oh, sicko. Oh, it's very touching. I'm a sicko. But the thing is, that this is all acted and like written so poorly and in such a ridiculous manner that it becomes actually comic. I'm not a person where I'm so jaded. Like I can get, I get sad at like sad moments, even kind of cheesy sad moments and things. But this is just so off the walls, fucking strange that it's like, you just feel like you're high watching this. So let, let's... Good God. Okay, so you have the Frenchman saying, we love America. This is, I'm not going to try to do a French accent, but we, we love America. America's so great. Hope nothing bad ever happened in America. That's why me and my brother moved to America. My name's going to be Bill Smith from now on because I like Americans so much, I'm going to change my name. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? I, I, I don't even know. Like, no. He's assimilating. He doesn't want to be French anymore. I don't really feel like the French in general are like this. I don't want to generalize, but like, I don't really see this. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't really see, I don't really see like a friend of uh, two French brothers coming to LA and being like, you know what? Let's just ditch our French names that we've had all our lives. We're like in late middle age right now and just go just name ourselves Bill Smith. That seems like somebody who's like a drug dealer who's trying to sneak in. So if, if you moved to France, would you change your name to Fifi? Um, well, I might have some troubles cause I think, a-I-N-E means, like, eldest or something. So I would be an older Kane. <laughs> <laughs> Fifi. Kevi. <laughs> so, anyways. So the this guy's going on and on about how great American America is. And these two dipshit cops are just letting him talk up how great the USA is. And then they're like, your brother's dead. Welcome to America, <laughs> asshole. We killed your brother. <laughs> Oh, my God. And then they go into some room where a kid... There's a couch in the room, I'm pretty sure. At least somewhere that it looks like it would be more pleasant to sit. But this little French kid is sitting, like, on this weird stool really awkwardly. Doesn't look comfortable. And then it's just him excitedly talking in French to his uncle, who is slowly telling him that his dad is dead. And this kid keeps on being like, la, 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 America. Like, like singing. And, and it's like, what? This is dragging on for fucking... All you had to do is have the kid, his eyes well up, close up, and then he's sad, and then they get out of there. That's all they had to do, but this goes on for, like, it feels like an hour. <laughs> and, you know, the finally Claude, the brothers, the, 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 the you know, the, the uncle is like, your father is dead, you little shit! <laughs> or that's what I wanted him to say. But finally the kid gets the picture. I'm just thinking, what the fuck was the point all of this? And... Then the kid comes up and hugs Friday and is weeping on Friday's pants. And Friday says, you don't have to translate anymore. And it's like, Jesus Christ. This was, it, like, the corniness level. I mean, I think Friday, Friday didn't need a translation anymore because he understands the language of corny fucking dialogue, no matter what, <laughs> what tongue it's in. It's just ridiculous. So I uh, this whole scene, 
made me laugh. I don't think you're supposed to laugh in a scene like this where it's a child mourning their parent, but that's that's where this movie got me in terms of mood. Our next scene. Oh, during during the course of that, they find out oh, this, this that French guy went to a restaurant. So oh, and of course the French guy leaves a note for his brother, being like, "These two men want to buy my jewels. I guess I'll go out with them to this like creepy uh, restaurant and go out to a vacant lot with them, and then you know get you know make sure I'm have my back turned to them the whole time. What could go <laughs> wrong? And that's just how they buy jewels in America, I guess. It's like oh my god. So the, we they go to the restaurant, and there's this parking lot attendant who's very folksy <sighs> they start asking him and he says oh keep in mind he's playing a banjo during this entire scene with straw hanging out of his mouth he saw three guys and he's oh what do these three guys do murder each other Yeehaw! <laughs> he's very folksy <laughs> so yeah this whole thing is just losing any momentum it had built up okay you have a serial killer you have a serial killer preying on women in la let's just divert to all these bizarre fucking side plots you know and of course they made the frenchman's murder like the stupidest thing in the world yeah with the mustard the mustard god damn it it's covered in mustard and ketchup and relish <laughs> more like hot dog town <laughs> Oh, my word. And so then we get to a really weird cut because you have this folksy hillbilly busboy yodeling on and on about what what he noticed about these two suspects. And then somehow they figure out where they are. So you have this very awkward cut from him talking to Friday and Gannon bursting through the door, looking like angry middle management storming an office. They like it. <laughs> It just looks wrong for them to be doing something, like, physical like that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I was worried for them there. <laughs> and uh, then they are interrogating these two lowlifes who killed the Frenchman. They take one of them into a kitchen, and shockingly enough, they discover mustard in the kitchen. <gasps> <laughs> mustard. And then they, they throw a newspaper one of them and telling him to read it and it's like is this part of some media literacy program like what is going like and like the two guys are so stupid and of course they use the prisoner's dilemma on them where they tell each of them that they ratted the other one out and they're both like oh you 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 and it goes nowhere (laughs) so they trick him and uh take him back to the office they're yelling you loud mouth peel head (laughs) what kind of insult is that oh we start playing to see that it's raining Mm. Yeah, it's very important. Also, unfortunately, back to the actual thing you care about as the viewer. While they've been dicking around, running after this French guy, <laughs> and and doing all this bullshit, a fourth girl has gone missing. A fourth girl, and this time it's another model. It's not a it's not a dating service thing. It was a model who was the- called off to a job and then never came back. They go to her apartment. There's no signs of violence or anything untoward. But something. Friday's saying there must be something. Yes. Well, they make a big deal about how pretty this lady is, right? Yes. And everyone knows that pretty girls don't eat. 
I'm obviously just kidding, but that's what this this movie is making it out to be. And they're like, she's a model. She wouldn't eat a candy bar. So they see two candy bars, I guess, lying around the place. And they're like, that doesn't fit. I mean, good Lord. <laughs> that breaks the case wide open. I was saying if this was what, some of my old rooms, it would have been like, if they were going based on just random shit they found lying around, they could make all sorts of, they'd be like, there was a big struggle here and it must've been multiple perps. Cause why else would the place be such a mess? And why would it be all this <laughs> crap lying around? Jeez. Like <laughs> I shudder to think what kind of scenario you could put together in some of my old rooms. <laughs> Somebody came in here and just collected a bunch of old papers that she didn't need for months. It must've been a stalker <laughs> and crammed them all in her desk. <laughs> You know, the, this clue of the candy bars was about all they had. Mm. You could write it on a piece of confetti. That's what Friday said. I thought he was going to say something like you could write it on a candy bar wrapper. That would have kind of made sense to me, but I kind of like, I like the confetti line. It was I like the confetti line. I like the pound of air. I like the confetti line. I like kind of the over-the-top noir drawl. I think that's kind of, kind of fun. But, but still, you know, so they're running around. So they go to a nearby uh, retail store which sells candy. They find some guy there in a big comical yellow duck raincoat and really big boots. <laughs> he looks ridiculous. He looks the fool. I've seen baby pictures where you were wearing that raincoat. Remember the ones when you're in the forest looking for Easter eggs? But you know, <laughs> that wasn't my choice. I was blameless in the affair. This man woke up and said, you know what would look really good today? A if big I, duck. <laughs> a big duck. That's what the ladies would love to see. It, he was right. And he said, oh, I, I remember a guy came in here uh, to buy some candy bars. And I remember a month ago he came in here and I suggested he go to this trailer park just down the road and move in there. What retail clerk would, rem would remember a guy coming in and buying candy bars? Unless they were also, like, juggling fire or something. Are you suggesting that this film is not realistic? No, it's not. So they go to this trailer <laughs> park, and some lady's there, and they're like, who used to live next to you because there's a big empty space? And she's like, this little creep, but he just moved out. You just missed him by about 15 minutes. So they go running running to get this trailer because that their, their, uh, their suspect is on the move. Before we, before we, before we just keep talking about this, because now we're kind of getting into the crux of the film, and, and it's going to be all serial killer stuff from here on. What do you make of this film? The Glatman case is really horrifying and upsetting to me, and I think to you as well. I guess, what do you make of this movie as a based on a true story kind of picture? Uh, what exactly are you asking? Well, like, what? Why do you think they? didn't just like do this story and why do you think they added all this bullshit uh dragnet was always based even if loosely on a true story and they'd always try to uh add some bullshit i i think brain was used to more of a half hour format and he just added too much padding why do you think well, i guess my question is like what do you think the bullshit they added tells us about like how they were able to write this kind of stuff like to me like it's 
it's almost they were uncomfortable with the Glatman case of how like scary it was. And they didn't want to focus too much on it, so they kept on distracting the audience with like, but look at this, they're doing this. They didn't really focus on what it must have been like for those women. And other than a couple of quick scenes with the brother, they didn't really deal with the people left behind after those victims died. Yes. We, we spent more time on that Frenchman's kid mm-hmm. than we did on all of the, the, the women who died. Does the mo- Does the show really get into, like, women being victimized by, like, predatory men like this? Or does it kind of tend to dodge that kind of stuff? They do a couple of stories like that. Yeah, I'm just curious because it, it, it feels like the movie is uncomfortable with the central crime here. Yeah. And... If it wanted to just be something where it's like you're just seeing the police's day play out, but you also, but there's also this undercurrent of dread with the serial killer. It's not that kind of thing. It's more of like you're just kind of diverting from the main plot and then coming back onto the main plot road. And it's just interesting to me because I I felt like they were, I feel like there was an element of like discomfort with this material because, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of, I mean, I'll just, uh, trigger warning. This is dark and it's about a serial killer, but this guy would go around and be uh, pretending to be a photographer, and then he would tie women up, photograph them, and, and strangle them. So it's like a really horrible, horrible case. It, the pictures are haunting. I, I regret if you If you them. Google this case, be warned. There's pictures out there. They're very disturbing. I wish I had not seen them because I will never forget them, and it's very upsetting. So it's like we, based on basically making an accidental Google choice by looking into this case, saw things that we're haunted by. But this this depiction of it isn't particularly haunting. No. It's kind of just, oh. We even see a version, like a recreation of the pictures. I didn't look at that point. Okay. It's not at all as haunting as the actual pictures, which I saw when I was in high school. Uh, my high school library had a, a collection of books on famous crimes, and I was paging through it, and I saw those pictures, and it was very upsetting to see. Yeah, I saw them on, like, Reddit or something. So it was, yeah, I, I still can picture them, and I don't like thinking about them, and I really wish I hadn't seen them um, because it's really, you can see the fear, and it's really horrifying. And it's like, and, you know, there's an element of, like, let them... Like, I wish these pictures weren't out there. Do you know what I mean? It feels mm-hmm. disrespectful to the victims somehow. Um, but anyways, I mean, that's different from this this picture. Th- this, this, uh, this movie, though, doesn't really seem to be contending with the crime. And I guess that's just interesting to me because it's like it was very much an L.A. crime because most of the victims were um, models. And that's, you know, big. It's the entertainment capital of the United States. So people are going there to have acting careers, have modeling careers. They're getting taken advantage of by these predatory men. This is like an extreme case of that happening because he's pretending to be a photographer. But, like, I don't know. We just get a very glancing look at it, and it's more like a problem to be solved than anything that they're kind of really like, oh, my God. And I I didn't feel like a lot of dread watching this film, to be honest. I was kind of surprised by that because I thought they could at least get something going in that department. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're making really good points. Uh, this, at its heart, the case is, is the story of women who are raped and murdered and terrorized by a man. And this movie is the story of men. 
it doesn't really look at the female perspective or the perspective of the victims. Well, I mean, I'm not even expecting a 1960s show to be like particularly interested in that, but I guess I thought even if it was a male-centric look at this kind of crime, I thought they could get some suspense going. I thought they could get some dread going. What's going to happen? How are we going to get this guy off the streets? But because the movie is so preoccupied with its side plots, it almost it almost feels like the movie itself is forgetting. You know, it's like it's like somebody who has a bunch of things to do and they keep on being like, oh, I better do this. Oh, I better do this. And you're procrastinating to get, to get away from your major yeah. task. And so it ends up feeling kind of almost like an afterthought to me a little bit. Um, and it's like, again, like I'm not even expecting them, oh, get the female perspective. I mean, that would be ideal, right? But I didn't necessarily expect that. But I expected more of like a, oh, shit, we have a serial killer in L.A. This is really bad, people. Let's double down and figure this out. But it doesn't have that urgency. No. And there's not even a sense of urgency in the scene coming up when uh... – the the serial killer has parked his trailer right by the side of uh, like a cliff or something and there's a woman in the trailer and he gets out of the trailer and unhooks it from his car and is like shaking the trailer acting like he's going to throw it over the side and you think there would be some discussion about shooting him yeah and like we're not people who are like oh shoot unarmed people but this is a situation where i don't think there would have been any question about whether you're gonna shoot him if it's a hostage situation like this yeah you know and he's literally out there if he drop if they shoot him and he drops the trailer it doesn't fall over the side right it's not like if he lets go it'll fall so it doesn't even make any sense this this big drawn out scene where they're trying to figure out to what to do those kind of scenes really lose a lot of effectiveness when there's a very obvious solution on what you should do and it's not being taken. Right. Uh, and also it loses a lot of tension because everyone seems very, very calm and relaxed. Yeah, it, it's kind of like they're all dealing with the, uh, getting a notification that their lunch order is delayed and they're like maybe someone's really hungry so that he, they're trying to figure out like if they can somebody can just go downstairs and get some granola bars. Like it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a big crisis. It feels right. like, uh, you know, Tuesday. And like obviously people who are used to a hostage situation are going to be calm. So it's not that that's the problem, but it's like there's a everyone's kind of acting a little bit almost like blasé. But anyway, Friday gets the idea. He's going to go around and climb up the cliff to ambush the punch him out murderer from behind and i thought that was kind of cool i'm not gonna lie i liked that i liked that so how does that work out for joe so it's raining and it's like kind of an 80 degree incline so he's fallen down the hill he's he but he's 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 you know there's a rock slide he climbed a mountain and he turned around and then he saw his reflection landslide Kevin but he keeps going he keeps and I kind of I kind of like this like I don't know I like it I like an exciting climax you know and he's running up that road running that at that hill running up to get to that trailer that's Kate Bush (laughs) I'm doing lots of song references he then gets into a big fight with the suspect they're punching each other in the face they're grabbing each other and eventually Friday sort of 
unrealistically punches this guy out. But I like to see that. I like him being thinking differently, and I like him taking a risk to go try to save this potential victim. But he was too late. They are able to stop the trailer from going over the side. But when they look inside, they find that not only is the woman inside dead, she's been dead for eight hours. Yes. So it was just a bluff the whole time. So they get the perp back to the uh, interrogation room, and he keeps on talking about how this mysterious toolbox. They know they know what you know. They know everything he did because they have the toolbox, and they kind of trick him into telling them where it is. And he gives them the key, so they go get it. And it's all these pictures of his victims. So now they have him, you know, they ha- I mean, they obviously had him dead to rights, but now they have the evidence of all this, all this crime and all these horrible crimes against these poor women. And he, uh, he, you know, even says he's, he'll take them to the bodies. He, he's pretty blasé, pretty blank. And I, my interpretation is that that is pretty true to how Glattman actually was. Yeah, that's my understanding too. And, uh, there's a line of dialogue coming up, which apparently is taken directly from something Glattman actually said. It's in, like if the whole movie had been about this, it would have just been depressing as hell. And but maybe a better movie, like yeah. maybe better written if they'd kind of looked, taken an unflinching look at this. But it flinched quite a lot. <laughs> it was a flinching take on the Glattman case. Um, the perp really does not want to talk about why he did it, uh, but he will show them the bodies and he asks for a candy bar. Um, but then while after he's photographed by the press, some, for some reason he does a heel face turn and he tells them why he did it and said that the girls themselves, the women he murdered actually asked him to kill them. And they say, what do you mean? And he said they would rather... They said they'd rather be dead than be with me. And again, that's something that Glattman apparently actually said. Yeah. Motherfucker was doing like a one-liner or something. What a piece of shit. Doing his his comedy routine. Yeah, what a piece of shit. And then he uh, eats his candy. He's booked on murder. Bill Gannon is forced to retire. He says he's going to have to make a living. He's going to have to work as a guard down in Pismo Beach. Bleak. Pretty bleak. And after that kind of... It's not played as bleak, though. Which itself is kind of bleak. Yeah. This is... Well, this is the norm. You're being forced to retire from an interesting job where you contributed to society. You're just going to be doing a minor drudge work now. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's okay. Maybe I'll drop by and see you sometime. Also, you just had to bust a, a guy who murdered four women for no reason other than his own sexual gratification. But like have fun guarding those electronics. And so then uh, Joe Friday says, well, eight months went by and then uh, I went to get my physical and it's like happy music dun, playing. Dun, dun, <laughs> don't worry about what you just saw. <laughs> Maybe that was just an unhappy dream. And then Friday says, those socks and bony knees could only belong to one man. Was that kind of a sexual innuendo? Are they implying that they hooked up and he saw his bony knees and his socks before? It was a little strange, Kevin. That's all I'm saying. And I found this huge... This, Are there Gannon and Friday shippers? There must be. I found this change of tone to be sudden and really jarring. This was very, this was very disconcerting. <laughs> I said that the scariest part was the uh, the bit with the the, the 
singles club, but this was really like, this was like the equivalent of having a really dark conversation with someone and then them going blank for a second and then smiling right at you. Like it was like, <laughs> like <laughs> uh, Gannon says when I was at Pismil beach, I ate a lot of clams and that helped my health. And so now I'm, uh, in such great health. I'm going to go back to work with you partner. Uh, the only thing left for me to do was get my blood test. And Friday says, well, I don't know if you can run a test on pure clam juice. Ha, 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 ha. Dun, 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 dun. And that's the end of the picture. <laughs> they ended as happy as clams. Doesn't this ending make more sense? I hate all those like, oh, but what if this was really the dark version? But like, wouldn't this make more sense if like Ganon had had a nervous breakdown or something? And then this was <laughs> the way he pictured things or like Friday after after the horror of the uh, the case that would have just been like, like this is his version of reality. This is what he's seeing in the mental asylum. Yeah, and Friday doesn't even seem that happy about Ganon coming back to work. No. Doesn't seem to care. <laughs> and Ganon, you think if he'd been forced to retire, you think he would have let uh, Friday know, well, guess what, buddy, I'm coming back to work. But no, he just happens to see his bony knees and his socks in the in a doctor's office. I think the doctor's office was an asylum, and I think that his partner was coming in to visit him and say, hey, buddy, you know, I hope you're doing... Hope you're doing good. Oh, yep, I'm coming back to work with you, you know. So are you positing that the four-year run of the series was just uh, a fever dream of one of the men? Hell, yeah. So is it Friday this crazy or Ganon this I don't crazy? know. Maybe both of them are. <laughs> it's a pretty disturbing case. What's your unvarnished take on this? Well, I, how do you feel about this movie first? I, I can't defend it. <laughs> but you will. I, I can't defend it. It's deeply flawed. I have such a love for these characters that I enjoyed it. What do you like about the... Well, first of all, what do you love about the characters that's displayed in this film? And why do you think it's indefensible? <laughs> I love the awkward banter between them. I love... It's like when your uncle or grandfather tries to be funny and with mm -hmm. it. Because they have... Uh, Gannon doing all of the so-called quirky things like, oh, isn't this humorous? He's trying to get a new bridge for his teeth. <laughs> what? Yeah. So that, that's kind of fun. I love the hum humorlessness and charisma-free performance of uh, Jack Webb. I just really dig the vibe of the show. Uh, it doesn't handle this case well. The narrative is bungled and confused. There's lots of side journeys that don't add anything. Yeah. So, yeah, it's indefensible. I really enjoyed it. I agree. I, I weirdly enough enjoyed it, too. I have no idea why. I do not. I drank your I drank your Dragnet Kool-Aid or clam juice, should I say, because I weirdly enough did not hate this. I couldn't. I would I would have to really think about why, Kevin, because it really on paper sucks. <laughs> But like it weirdly enough, like it went down easy. I guess maybe in a way it was a good procedural because it's like just here's a bunch of people doing their jobs. We'll see how it works out. So do do you find uh Jack Webb somewhat magnetic at this point? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I get that. He's he's very strange. It, it, you, I like I like a character that shouldn't really work and like it was just very flat and kind of like very work obsessed. Who's work obsessed, but not making a big deal about it. You know what I mean? Who's just clearly obsessed with work. 
So would you like be interested in theory and like seeing a movie where Jack Webb plays the editor of a newspaper? Such a film exists. Oh god damn it. <laughs> I would. But no, I I It's called I get 30. It. You're like the you're like a Webster's dictionary over here. I think we're about done. Now wait a minute. <laughs> I got to do my unvarnished yes, take. Why don't you clam up, Kevin? While I do my unvarnished take. So, Dragnet 1966 nets some suspense and interesting moments, but much of the film <laughs> is not connected to the central mystery and just drags on and on. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me that's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore and at mystery to me podcast on facebook and instagram and you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com we're not teens setting up hotmail accounts in the early 2000s so all of those spell out two as t-o thanks Thanks so so much much for listening. listening